Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 71. Psalm 71 as we continue learning about David. This 38th trait, hope of future life. We had, for number 37, hope in present life. Number 38 is hope of future life. And we're going to start at Psalm 71 about David. He knew there was a great reversal of fortune coming after death, and he lived in light of that. And this doesn't contradict number 37. It just adds to it that he had a perspective of both. Number 38 is hope of future life. In Psalm 71, beginning at verse 8, Let my mouth be filled with thy praise and with thy honor all the day. Cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. For mine enemies speak against me, and they that lay wait for my soul take counsel together, saying, God hath forsaken him. Persecute and take him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste for my help. Let them be confounded and consumed that are adversaries to my soul. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor that seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day, for I know not the numbers thereof. There was a salvation coming for David that he didn't even want to try to quantify because he said in that 15th verse, I know not the numbers thereof, to show forth all of his righteousness and his salvation. If you turn over just two Psalms, to Psalm 73, though written by Asaph, we know that it reflects the heart of David because David chose and ordained Asaph to be another praise and worship leader in Israel. In Psalm 73, Asaph is confused by the prosperity of the wicked and wonders about his own self-denial in comparison to their pleasure in life until he goes into the sanctuary of the Lord in verse 17, then understood I their end. Then I was reminded what's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to me. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. So there is the perspective that we get from going into the sanctuary, that there is a reward for the righteous and a reward for the wicked, and the reward for wicked is to be brought into destruction and desolation as in a moment, and the reward for the righteous is to be received up into glory with God himself. And David had that perspective, and we want both. If we get too earthly oriented, we'll miss the spiritual orientation we're told in both Testaments to have. If we get too heavenly oriented, we'll neglect this life and look like monks and nuns rather than the active, enjoying, happy 
ones that God intends us to be as we covered in number 37. Come back to Psalm 49, which is a message to the rich of the world that they're all going to die. And it's about death and burial and how your body's going to corrupt. But there's one verse in it that David wrote that gives hope. And it was the hope that he had of life after death and that his body would be delivered from the power of the grave. I mean, if you read down through this, hear this, all ye peoples, the first verse, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together, because I'm about to lay something on you that's true of everyone. Verse 6, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. There is no price you can pay. There is nothing you can do to cause yourself or anyone else not to see corruption. It's coming on all men. You know, and he, he ridicules their inward thought that even though they see men die, they think they're going to live forever. They name their lands and their houses after themselves. And it's negative, negative about men trusting in themselves when they're all going to die and be thrown into the graves like sheep. Verse 15, another inspired disjunctive. But, but, in opposition to the thinking of the rich, in opposition to the thinking of the world, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Right. Selah. Then he goes on and describes about the, the wicked and the rich dying and being cast into the graves and they're just like beasts in the way that they die and not recognize what is to come after that. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. In Psalm 16, in Acts chapter 2, it says, God will not leave my soul in hell. So, by comparing those two passages, what does hell mean? Grave. And soul is body. Because your soul doesn't go into the grave in the way that we often use the word soul it's referring to the body because all that goes into the grave is the body. Our spirit immediately is with the Lord. Jesus said when he was on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, meaning my spirit is going to be with God and dying thief, your spirit is going to be with God as well today. But the bodies of both were taken down off of crosses and put into tombs and we want to keep that distinction. It speaks of parents and their children. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. From the grave, from an untimely death is why we discipline children. But here we have it. God will redeem. He'll buy my body, my soul back from the power of the grave. The power of that grave that corrupts all rich men is not going to corrupt me forever because he's going to receive me body, soul, and spirit, which is what both Testaments teach. He had hope of a future life. Look at 2 Samuel 23 and how he viewed death on his deathbed. 2 Samuel 23. And some of you may have read this last evening in preparation. Now these be the last words of David. The first sentence tells us in 2 Samuel 23. Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's a lot of descriptions for the man. Said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, 
and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That's what a perfect ruler is. There was only one in David's family, and he hadn't met him yet, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And look what David has to admit about his family. In verse 5, Although my house be not so with God, I haven't reigned, and my sons aren't going to reign, like I just described by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon me. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. It's not going to come back and pick up Absalom. It's not going to pick up Solomon or Rehoboam. It's not going to come back and perfect even me. But there is a perfect son coming, and this is all my salvation. This is the everlasting covenant God made with David about his son being on David's throne. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 55 and in Acts chapter 13, it's called the sure mercies of David because God promised sure mercies that would never leave David for his son to be on his throne and his son would be that kind of a ruler. This is an inspired description of a perfect ruler. David wasn't one, but David's son is one. Let's get the words just to rejoice in them. The second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. There's been no one as righteous and just as the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. The scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. He has loved righteousness and hated iniquity. He shall be as the light of the morning. That isn't Solomon. That isn't Rehoboam. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. For those of you old enough, you know this description of weather. It is a beautiful morning when the sun rises and you don't have it confused, clouded, hid, messed up by clouds being in the sky. It is a clear sky and the sun comes up in its glory and its power. And if it's rained, then the earth is just cleansed. The air, the dust is out of the air. It's beautiful. And you can see it, you sense it, and you rejoice in it. And that's what a good ruler is like. And we have one Amen. in the Son of David, the Lord Jesus. And this is the hope of David in his future life. This is all my salvation. This is all my desire. He's got an oxygen hose at his nose. He's at the end of his life. These be the last words of David. I wasn't a perfect ruler. My sons aren't going to be after me. However, there is one coming and he is my son, this is the covenant God's made with me. And that fifth verse, it's an everlasting covenant. It's ordered in all things. Joseph's already been ordained. Mary's been ordained. Jesus has been ordained. His victory over death has been ordained. Ordered in all things and sure, the sure mercies of David are the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead and being seated at God's right hand. Acts 13 is our commentary. This is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. This is everything to me, 
that in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I have a descendant on the throne and I have a savior forever. This is all my salvation. Beautiful. That's the way to die. That God's made with us an everlasting covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We have an everlasting covenant made with us. And that's where our trust should be. So David had that hope of a future life. He knew that his body was going to be delivered from the grave, and he knew that he had a Savior that was ordered in all things and sure, and there wasn't going to be one lost, although he make it not to grow. It may not be as wide as you think it should be, but it's as wide as God thinks it should be. It's as deep as God thinks it should be. And that is deep and wide enough for me. A man like David would wish that he and Solomon and Rehoboam and Ahaz and every son after him would have been a perfect ruler. They weren't. They were terrible. Solomon was terrible. Solomon worshipped pagan gods that were child sacrifice gods and there's no reason why we shouldn't assume that Solomon offered, allowed children to be offered to those idols. He built the temples for them. Right. He built temples to Molech, David's own son. Thank you, Lord, for the sure mercies of David in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where David put his trust. And though God didn't make it grow in the way that it might have met his personal desires, it was sufficient for him and it was all his salvation. And he was content to die that way. He didn't complain dying at 70. You won't read any complaint about David dying at 70. All he's doing is wanting to make sure that the princes of Israel will help his son make that temple exceeding magnificent because the palace is not for men, it's for God. So help him make this great. And as other words to Solomon, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father. You obey him and he'll bless you. You disobey him and he will trouble you and destroy you. Those were his thoughts. These were his thoughts. This is how he died. Because he had a great future hope. And we want to have such a great future hope. Number 39. He was a night muser with God. A muser is M-U-S-E-R. A night muser with God. Number 39. This characterized David. If you're reading the one chapter a day Bible reading program, then you recently read Psalm 4 and verse 4, and I read it to you now. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Some like Psalm 46, where it says, Be still and know that I am God. Because you've got to get the distractions out. And where is there one place where most of the distractions are gone? It's in bed. Be a night muser. To muse is to think. To muse is to consider, to meditate upon something. We have amusement parks in America because it's where you go so that you don't think. There's so much carnival noise and yelling and screaming about being scared of the Ferris wheel or a roller coaster or whatever else the crazies there want to get on. It's called an amusement park. An atheist is an atheist. A theist is someone who believes in God. And atheism is, I don't believe in God. Musing is thinking and meditating 
and putting your mind to active, productive work and amusement is doing none of that, occupying yourself like a child with little toys at a carnival. And so I want you to appreciate the word muse. And so I'm calling him, I'm calling him the night muser. And I'll show you the word muse shortly. But look at Psalm 4.4 where it says, Commune with your own heart upon your bed. Talk to yourself. Meditate and muse with yourself upon your bed and be still. Calm down from all your activities and think about the God of heaven. You will soon meet him. Psalm 4.4. Look at Psalm 42.8. Psalm 42.8. Remember, David was a night muser. Psalm 42 and verse 8. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, and my prayer unto the God of my life. In bed can be one of the best times of your life because there are no distractions. Hopefully you have turned off your smartphone, you've turned off the computer, you've turned off the phone, you've turned off the lights, you've turned off everything. And in bed, you can be with the Lord and you can talk to him without interruption. No one's going to knock at the door. No one's going to say anything to you. They can be very productive hours. I last preached on this about a year ago or six months ago sometime about Elihu. Elihu was this way. Because in Job chapter 33, we are taught that God oftentimes deals with men at night. And we want to be ready and willing for God to deal with us at night and to keep us back from iniquity and to keep us back from pride. And Elihu said that, and David practiced it. And we want to learn that from David. If you go to bed too tired, you go to bed too late, you won't even have time in the precious place where you can be close to God. You say, well, I get close to God next to the ocean. Precious. David didn't. David got close to the Lord in bed. Because at the ocean, guess what you start thinking about? Every wave brings in something new. Every tide is different. Every bug, every little sand bug that's running around under your feet, there's all kinds of distractions, but there aren't any at night. You can use that time. And I like being at the edge of the ocean at night with some, a storm helps just to make you feel very small and very much dependent upon God. And on top of a mountain is nice. But in bed, you can have a relationship with the Lord like David did. And David makes lots of references to it. And I'm just going to share a few with you. Look at 88. Psalm 88. We don't have this kind of information about anyone else. You know, I just mentioned Elihu. And Elihu was spoken to at night by God. But we have so little about Elihu. And so much about David. There's many things about David that we know that we don't know about Elihu, even though on this matter of night relationship with the Lord, Elihu matches up with David, just like Daniel and David matched up on prayer. But you don't know the heart of Daniel. You know so little about Daniel in the Bible compared to how much we know about David. Psalm 88 and verse 11, Shall thy loving kindness... That's not a very good reference. 88.1 O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. David didn't have to be in the temple or the tabernacle to think that he was before God. In bed, at night, he considered himself to be before God. And when you think about the fact that there's no distractions, and so it's just God and me right now, 
And if you will use that time, you will come to appreciate it that God can speak to you then. And there's no other noise distracting you and and stealing your attention and stealing your affection away. You can say some of the most tender, personal, intimate things to God without distraction. I encourage you to try it. I encourage you to do it because David did. He examined himself at night. He communed with his own heart. And then God can communicate back. Look at Psalm 16 and verse 7 about the Lord communicating back at night. David was a night muser with God. And if we want to be like David, we need to do this. You don't need to go to bed with worldly music playing. You don't need an earbud in with the world's music playing. You don't need to go to bed trying to learn Spanish with some earbud in. You need to go to bed talking to the Lord. Everybody wants to learn at night because they don't want to muse. Spanish isn't going to help you. Learn Russian. Don't learn anything. Learn the English of the Word of God. Oh, all the distractions that we have. You can't be alone or quiet anymore. Be still and know that I am God. You get in your car and there's all this music. The musical devices wanting to play. The smartphones wanting to carry noise with you. People everywhere now have these little earbuds in. Just pounding themselves with noise all the time. It's not real music. It's noise. Look at the effect that it has on them. They're idiots. It does, it's not made the world better. If you want to listen to godly music, that's a different thing. And we've been over that point earlier because David loved music. And you, can, you have more means to godly music than ever before. But let's grab a hold of this point right now about night. Look at Psalm 16 and verse 7. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I get instruction and have profitable contemplation at bed, in bed at night. 17.3 Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Notice that Psalm 17.3, right after 16.7, says, Thou hast visited me in the night. Do you want God to visit you? You know, we think coming to church is visiting God. We think having devotions is visiting God. But I'm telling you, in bed, God can visit you. God doesn't like you distracted. God wants you all to himself. And do you know when you're all to yourself? In bed. And so I encourage you this way. Look at Psalm 63 in verse 6 and how David meditated on God at night. Psalm 63 in verse 6. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. There's four watches of the night. 6 p.m. to 9, 9 p.m. to midnight, midnight to 3 a.m., 3 a.m. to 6. The military was organized that way for three-hour watches. The Bible refers to these watches. But in Psalm 63, 6, David said, I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Do you count sheep? What do you do? Talk to the Lord. Quote him a verse. Tell him how much he means to you, how much you love him. 
Beg him to help you. Beg him to come to you. David was a night muser. Amelia, you know Psalm 1, don't you? Yep. Psalm 1, 2 says that the man will meditate upon the word of God day and night. I thought you'd be able to help me. Day and night. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 about the word of God, meditating upon it day and night. His word is glorious. Psalm 119 and verse 148. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Mine eyes precede the night watches. I am not waiting until morning. I'm involved in thinking about you and the word of God in the night that I might meditate in thy word. There are many more. I've preached about it before. I've mentioned it before. I encourage you to be a night muser like David was, if we're going to be like him. Number 40, self-examined his own soul. That's a hyphenated word to start that four-word phrase. Self-examined his own soul. David was very good and practiced at being very personal, private, and intimate with himself about analyzing his relationship with God. If you don't like others doing it, about you, then you should do it yourself. If you don't like others examining you and finding you coming up wanting, then do it yourself and get things corrected. Then no one else can do it. David did it himself. It's number 40. Now we just had it in Psalm 17.3, and so I'm going to use that verse again. And I love the overlap. I don't look at the overlap as reducing the number of traits. I look at the traits overlapping to make the complete man. Psalm 17.3, Thou hast proved mine heart, thou hast visited me in the night, thou hast tried me, and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. That was 17.3. I believe half the church should know these verses. The last two verses of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Search me. And know me. Try me and know me. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That is examining himself with the Lord's help. Lord, help search me. Help try me. Help know me. And see if there be any wicked way there. Help me see it. And lead me in the way everlasting. That was David. David wrote us those words. Those are great verses to memorize. The last two verses of Psalm 139. Psalm 26 is a psalm that I mentioned earlier. Let's look at it again. The first two verses only and look at the verbs there. From Psalm 139, we had search and try and know. Here we have judge, examine, prove, and try. Psalm 26, judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord Therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. And he goes on to describe his integrity. He describes it in detail in the verses that follow, which I read to you earlier. But notice the verbs. And you've got to be living right to do this, but it's David asking God to help him, examining himself. He's not examining the rest of the church, the Old Testament church. He's not examining his family. He's examining himself. Judge me. 
And that's where our emphasis ought to be. That's where we start. That's where we worry about the beams in our own eyes before we want to have eye surgery on someone that's got a speck of dust there. And so this is David, and he's teaching us how he was a man after God's own heart. Psalm 19. It's only a few psalms away. Psalm 19. Verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Do you know everything that you do that's wrong? No. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. They're called secret faults because you don't know them. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. This is examining yourself before the Lord and admitting, I don't know my own errors. What I don't know, show me. Reveal to me my secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. This is a two-way conversation, David and the Lord, and David about himself with the Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. I don't trust myself. I don't know everything about myself. I want everything to be pleasing to you, Lord. Help me. That's the way we ought to pray. That's how we self-examine ourselves with the Lord. Number 41. Meditation and holy musing. This isn't the emphasis isn't on night. The emphasis is on meditation. Meditation and holy musing. The man that doesn't sit and see the scornful, he meditates on God's word day and night from Psalm 1 and verse 2. Look at Psalm 46 and verse 10, which I've quoted, but I want you to see it. Psalm 46 and verse 10, the four words for number 41 are meditation and holy musing. That is another word for meditation. Psalm 46 and verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. How do we know that Jehovah is God? According to this text, we've got to be still to know it. Be still and know it. Be still. Get rid of all the distracting noise and distracting activities out of your life and take some time to meditate. There is nothing better that you can do waking than to get alone with the Word of God and tell Him that you are alone to meet with Him and would He speak to you through His Word and by His Spirit through that Word. They are precious times. It's the refueling of the soul of a saved man. And if you're too busy and you don't do it or you turn on the noise boxes in your house, What's that big noise box that's got that moving picture on the front of it? What's that thing called? James? It's called a television. You don't have to worry about it. Sorry, my mistake. Uh, The noise boxes, to get rid of them and to be able to sit with the Lord and just open His Word. I mean, open His Word with the greatest anticipation that you are about to read the words of the living God and to read each one of them and to delight in them. You know, some I have limited you to one chapter in one of the reading programs. I wouldn't care if you read one verse. If you focused on that one verse and begged for the Lord to reveal Himself to you through that verse. It's not quantity. It's quality. 
It's having the Lord speak to you and you delight in each one of those words like David writes in Psalm 119, which is quite a long chapter. Meditation and holy musing. Look at 49 and verse 3. My mouth shall speak of wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. When I open my mouth, it's going to be wise things coming out. When I think... It's going to be based on understanding. It's going to be the truth of life. It's going to be about the certainty of death, but the promise of everlasting life, which is what Psalm 49 is all about. Look at 77. Psalm 77. This is meditation and holy musing. You can do more of this, but you can't be too busy. If you're too busy, you've got to give something up so that you have some time with the Lord, alone, undistracted. Psalm 77, verse 5. I have considered the days of old. Notice, that is a mental activity of remembering the past and meditating and thinking about it. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. There we are again. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. What has changed in my life? Is it my fault? Is God trying me? I call to remembrance. I used to sing in the night. I commune with my own heart. I enter into fellowship and communion and friendship with myself and talk to myself, and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? I don't think so. You know what he's going to teach us in this particular place. He's going to teach us, this is my infirmity in verse 10. This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will consider ancient times, the things that God has done before in the Bible, the things God has done for me, the things God has done for others. I'll remember those things and I'll make diligent search. What's going on here? Have I sinned? And the Lord is punishing me? Has the Lord withdrawn and wants me to pursue him? Or is this my infirmity of a weak, emotional, melancholy state that I need to gain the victory over? And so you have Psalm 77. And it's through meditation and communing and examining yourself and making diligent search. Now David as a king was supposed to make diligent search to find out if criminals had actually committed a crime. There were lots of things as a father, as a husband, as a leader, as a prophet that he was to make diligent search for, but this is diligent search of himself. This is what I mean by meditation and holy musing. Look at Psalm 143 so that I can show you the word. You don't necessarily want to go home and look up in a dictionary what a muse is because the word's been corrupted. Right now we're using it in the way of meditative, contemplative thinking. Psalm 143 and verse 5. I love this verse about this internal work of David because it's got three verbs. I remember the days of old. We just had that from Psalm 77. I remember how faithful God has been in the past with his people as recorded in the Bible. I remember how faithful he has been with me in the past. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. 
I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. His soul has been persecuted in the first few verses. But notice what he does about it. His spirit is overwhelmed within him. Verse 4. My heart within me is desolate. What should you do? Have a meltdown? Go to bed? Pull the blankets over your head. Is that what you should do? Is that what people do sometimes? Oh, yes, they do. Should you turn on a bunch of noise? Should you put an earbud in? Should you get drunk? What should you do when your spirit is overwhelmed? Should you get high? Should you get stoned? What should you do when verse 4 is true? Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I'm lonely. I'm crushed. I'm broken. I'm very cast down. There's something to do. And it's not any of the things I listed. It's verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands, and I stretch forth my hands unto thee. Lord, save me. And guess what? He will save you. But you are basing it on what you know about him already. Because you're remembering things from the past, and you're meditating on all that he has done, and you muse on what he's able to do and what he's done. Number 42, there's more, trust me. Number 42, simple man and goals. Simple man and goals. David was a simple man with simple goals, and I've mentioned this to you already, so it shouldn't take us very long. Do you want a verse? Then I'm going to use Psalm 27 and a verse in that chapter. Psalm 27, remember that's the one you're going to memorize this next week. Two verses a day will get you 14 wonderful verses. And on Wednesday, you're going to be memorizing about God's pavilion. You are going to see the army of heaven encamped across all the hills as far as your eyes and a telescope can see. All those pup tents holding a couple of angels per tent and a great pavilion in the center where you get to hide in the secret place of the Most High. That's in verse 5. Every verse in Psalm 27 is weighty and precious. I do encourage you. Anybody want to write me and challenge me? I'll memorize it with you. Yes, I already have, but, you know, I'll encourage you that way. It's a great psalm. And so I give you verse 4, which you've only heard a few times out of this pulpit. One thing. Have I desired of the Lord? That's a simple man. One thing have I desired of the Lord. He did not have this big long agenda. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after. He had holy, he had simple goals. A simple desire, a simple man and simple goal. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. This is his reason why I want to see the attributes of God and learn God better and see his beauty and to inquire in his temple. I want to know what he wants me to do with my life. This is the simplicity of David. This should be gripping to you. 
how simple the man was. He did not have to start off every New Year's Day writing down a thousand different things he wanted to do. He had one thing that was overriding in his life. Simplicity is the bedrock of a dedicated and zealous life with the fewest distractions. Simplicity is not bad when we're using it this way. Simplicity can mean ignorant and foolish and stupid, but simple in the way I'm using it right here is one-minded, one heart, single eyes, focusing on one goal. David's single heart was to love God. His single purpose was the glory of God, and his single program was the building up the church of God. And see, it's all in this verse. The house of the Lord is a place for congregational worship, building up the house of the Lord. I want to dwell there. My goal, to behold the beauty of the Lord. It's the glory of God that is my ambition. And, and what is my desire? What motivates me? One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. And so the, the beauty of God, the beauty of Jehovah, the way he's revealed himself to us in the word of God, through Christ, in creation, by providence, the beauty of Jehovah was the passion of his heart. Lord, help it to be our passion more. Amen. To know thee. We are thankful that you know us. And we know that our eternal destiny depends on you knowing us. But we thank you for giving us existence so that we might know thee and love thee and inquire of thee and behold thy beauty. Let us make that the overdriving concern of our lives. David was a simple man and he had simple goals. Having various agendas is to be double-minded and David was very single-minded. Number 43, Fearless when facing danger. Fearless when facing danger. What do you have to do that you're a little intimidated about? What do you need to do that you're afraid of? Let's just do it this next week. Fearless when facing danger. Number 43. When David was 15 years old and was left by his family out in the woods, fields, with his father's sheep, a bear came after the flock. David didn't run up a tree. It doesn't help with some bears to run up a tree. He didn't try to outrun the sheep. If you all know that story, I'm not going to tell it. Keep me honest. I'm not going to tell it. He didn't try to outrun the sheep. He didn't run home. He didn't tell his dad it's too scary to be out here. He went and took on a bear. Now the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him in a couple of ways. The Lord gave him the physical prowess to do it. No wonder when his resume at 15 reached King Saul, it said, a mighty man of valor and a man of war. We could definitely use him in our ranks, though he was a teenager and had never fought a day in his life. But he had fought a bear. And so he was called, how else do you describe a guy in a short resume to King Saul? He's a mighty man of valor. A lion came. And he tore the lion up. He killed the lion to save his father's sheep. He didn't run the other way. Lions aren't very good in trees. But you better, be, you better not be on the lowest limbs when a lion comes after you and you're in a tree. David didn't do that. And I've mentioned this point before, but enjoy it. When David's son wrote 
about what keeps people from doing difficult things, he, there's a line in the streets. It's in the book of Proverbs. There's a line in the streets. Now, no one is really afraid of an, a literal lion in the streets, but they are intimidated by some project that's in front of them as being more than they can handle, and so they're afraid of it, and they don't want to tackle it, but David would tackle it. And so that's why this trait, number 43, fearless when facing danger. He took on a bear and he took on a lion. He was the opposite of his son Solomon's mockery of sluggards in the book of Proverbs. He took on Goliath. The Lord was with him. Is there not a cause? There's a reason to go down there and do this. And I'll bet if we would have asked David, he would have been like Abraham. I was ready to kill Isaac. I knew that the Lord could raise him from the dead. And if Goliath killed me, that's okay. But I'm going to try to cut his head off to shut that mouth of his. Because he was blaspheming my God. So there was a cause. And when there's a cause... And we're, we all have things this next week that need to be done that are going to be more intimidating than other things. Let's take them on in the fearlessness of David. That doesn't mean we're not prudent. That doesn't mean we're not wise. That doesn't mean we don't pray before we do it. We're, you're not a prophet quite like David. David could tell Goliath exactly what was going to happen to him. But we ought to be fearless like he was. And yet... I want to tell you, David had fears. Look at Psalm 56. Psalm 56. It's not wrong to be afraid. It's not faithless to be afraid. I have preached this before. It's what you do with that fear. There are things that come up in life that are fearful. But it's what we do about them. David put his trust in the Lord, girded on his sword, and went and did whatever needed to be done. And that's what we ought to do. Psalm 56 and verse 3, look at the simplicity of this verse. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And so we go in the Lord's strength, we go in the Lord's deliverances. But notice, fearless David, I'm calling him. Fearless when facing danger, yet we know that he was afraid. But how did he respond? Did it destroy him? Did it keep him at home? Did it keep him in bed? Or did he go out and take on the bears, lions, Goliaths, the Philistines, and everyone else that he needed to the way he should have? He did. But he did it in the trust in the Lord by putting his trust in God rather than just himself. When it's time to face a bear, you want to put your trust in the Lord. The Lord can cause the bear's mind to change. The Lord can cause there to be another slow hunter between you and the bear. Okay, I told it. The Lord can do all kinds of different things, but you put your trust in the Lord, and then you go do your reasonable best and trust him for the rest. And David did that, and David did that repeatedly. His life was full of danger. This, fourth, this 43rd point is fearless when facing danger, and David faced danger very often. Right. And then he put his trust in the Lord. Look at Psalm 118. Psalm 118, number 43, is fearless when facing danger. Now I'm going to show you a verse in Psalm 118 that Paul uses in Hebrews 13. Verse 6. The Lord is on my side. The Lord is on my side. 
The Lord is on my side. Where do you want the emphasis? I love every word of it. The Lord. There's not multiple lords. There's one Lord Jehovah. And he's on my side. Remember when you were being picked for war ball in school and you won the guys with the strongest arms on your side so they weren't going to put that red rubber ball in your face from the other side? Do you remember those days? The Lord is on my side. Right there, Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? You say, I will not fear? David, you told us that you were afraid at various times. Yeah, he was afraid momentarily. He was afraid weakly until he put his trust in the Lord and realized the Lord's on my side. What can man do to me? Really? What can the Philistines do to me if the Lord's on my side? What can Saul do to me with the Lord on my side? And that's how we should face the fears of our lives. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? If you were to read around this sixth verse, it tells you about how David deals with dangerous situations. I called upon the Lord in distress in verse 5. He was in distress. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. He promoted me after saving me. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. I've had people all my life come and want to help me, whether it's my three nephews or it's the 600 Gittites or it's the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the Lord has blessed them. Did you read about the mighty men? Did they do some pretty decent things? Was Adino, the, the, the Ezraite, pretty powerful? I mean, he took down 800 men with a spear in one battle. Did, did, did God bless that friend of David? Why did God bless that friend of David? Because you read about Adino in Hebrews chapter 11, you'll never read about him again. It was all for David. David understood all that. Right here. I will not fear, because the Lord's on my side. And that's how we ought to look at things. Look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34. If you're afraid of something, turn it over to the Lord. Tell him you're trusting him and go do what he would expect you to do. Your reasonable best, only your reasonable best, prudently done, in wisdom. Get counsel if you need counsel and go do it. Let's be like David. Psalm 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. I've been afraid. I put my trust in the Lord. I went and did what I was supposed to do, and he delivered me from all my fears. That moment of Ziklag would have been one of the most fearful in his life when even his own friends wanted to stone him, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. He went back and reviewed everything the Lord's done for me before, everything he's done for others in the Word of God. We've been through this on a Wednesday night just a few months ago. I, I can, Lord's going to be with me. Why do I need to be afraid of the Amalekites? And why do I need to be afraid of these men? Let me go to the Lord right now and find out if he wants me to pursue the Amalekites. If he wants me to pursue the Amalekites, then I'm going to lead these men and show them how to get back all their stuff. He did it all. He went to the Lord. The Lord said, go get them. You'll recover everything. He jumped out in front of that army, put his pearl hand revolvers on, 
Pearl handled revolvers on and led that army standing up in his Jeep all the way after those Amalekites until he regathered everything. But there was a moment when his men around him wanted to stone him to death. And he was afraid of them momentarily. But then he put his trust in the Lord, asked the Lord what he should do, and then did something with that. And each of us can do the very same thing and follow the same process. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. There's six, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Now that's the only kind of fear that you ought to have and emphasize, and that's the fear of God. Because the angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And I thank God for the mother that he gave me that taught me that when I was a little four-year-old that used to have nightmares at night and she would have to come in and take me around with a flashlight and show me that there wasn't any boogeyman. You know, I wasn't, I never had a television. I didn't know, I didn't know what a boogeyman was, but there was somebody in the house who was going to kid, probably my dad's stories of kidnapping, probably. He's not here to defend himself, but he did like to tell us stories about kidnapping and ransom payments and things like that. And so I'd be afraid at night. Mom would come in and show me that under no bed, behind no couch, no closets, was there anybody that was going to kidnap me. And then she would tell me, over that corner is the angel of the Lord camping. So what are you afraid of? And, I, and, and pound this verse into me, and I'm so thankful for that. And I'm 60 years old now, and I hope that I still believe this verse and love this verse, and I want you to love it with me. Right. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. Amen. And so there's no reason to be afraid. David was fearless. What have we learned today? Look at your page. Number 33. I would encourage you to go home and work up and put the other 32 in. And you know, to make it easy for you, I'll probably send you an email shortly with the first 32 in four-word phrases so you won't have to struggle too hard. But, but just go through the exercise, what made David different? What made David special? 33, he loved even his enemies. Jesus taught us the same and you should do it. That's to be perfect and to be the child of God. Number 34, he was patient and waited upon the Lord. Wait my soul upon God. My expectation is from him. Patient when under duress. Number 35, he was a man of daily prayer. He prayed three times a day as Psalm 55 tells us. You can use one of your devices to remind you to pray an extra time or two a day to be like David. Number 36, he reasoned with holy reasoning with God. He knew how to reason with God in prayer. He could take God's own words back to the Lord. He would tell the Lord what would happen if the Lord would bless in this matter. That if the Lord didn't preserve his life, he wouldn't be able to give him the praise of a living man, and so forth. Number 37, David had hope in this present life, the land of the living. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's ways to remind the Lord and to thank the Lord for that hope in this present life. Number 38, David had hope in a future life, resurrection from the dead, and being received up into glory with God and his trust and confidence. All my salvation is wrapped up in God's covenant with the, of the Lord Jesus Christ with me. 2 Samuel 23 taught us that. Number 39, David was a night muser with God. We're going to be in bed in about eight, or eight hours or so, 
Make tonight a time when you talk to the Lord. Talk to him. Ask him to come to you. David was a night muser with God. Number 40, David self-examined his own soul. He communed with his own heart. He made diligent search about himself. What's really going on in my life? Am I truly following the Lord the way I should be? Or could I do better? Should I do better? Lord, help me see my own self in reality. Number 41, meditation and holy musing. David spent time thinking and considering and communing with his own heart about the Lord and about his life and about God's works. I muse upon the work of his hands. I remember his works of old. I meditate on all his works. He tells us about how David approached life. We don't know these kind of things about anyone else like we do about David. Number 42, he was a simple man with simple goals. The four words are simple man and goals. A single heart, loving God. A single purpose, the glory of God. And a single program, building up the church, which is God's worship on earth. Number 43, fearless when facing danger. Though he would be afraid at times, he would turn and put his trust in the Lord and then go do what he was supposed to do and the Lord would deliver him and bless that effort. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and bless us by his spirit to be more and more like David.